Welcome to episode 2123 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Have we ever got a preview pod for you? Oh, boy. That makes it sound like it's a particularly special preview pod. It's one of 15 that we will be doing before opening day, but it's a fun one. It's a couple yeah. of fascinating teams, I think, and yeah. good guests. We hope they're yeah, all friends, good guests. Friends but of the pod. Yeah, returning guests. So yeah. Alex Spear of the Boston Globe will be joining us soon to talk about the Boston Red Sox. And AJ Caswell of MLB.com will be talking to us about the San Diego Padres. Lots of questions we could ask about those two teams and that, in fact, we did ask and will ask from your perspective, the listener. However, I was kicking myself for a minute after we did our Mets preview last time or two times ago because I was thinking I should have asked about Billy Epler's investigation, (laughs) that ongoing investigation. What's the status of that? I guess it's less of a preview than a review. Mm. But I'm glad, I guess, that we didn't ask about that because we probably would have gotten a noncommittal answer. And now we know the outcome of that investigation, which is that Billy Epler's in some trouble. He is on the ineligible list. He can't work in baseball until the end of this season. So it's not the most severe punishment, but it is certainly a punishment more than a slap on the wrist. And this was the investigation for improper use of the injured list. And he was, in fact, found liable for that, including the deliberate fabrication of injuries. Yeah. And the MLV investigation also concluded that the pattern of conduct was at Mr. Epler's sole direction Mm -hmm. and without any involvement of Mets ownership or superiors. Mm -hmm. So he acted alone. So uh, he's gone now (laughs) and the slate is wiped clean. Mm Mm-hmm. Who knows? We don't really know any of the details to this point. Nothing at least has been publicly reported about specific phantom injuries that happened here. But there were fabricated injuries. There was an associated submission of documents to secure multiple improper injured list placements during the 2022 and 2023 seasons. So essentially, the Mets were putting some people on the injured list who were not actually hurt. Ben! Here's the thing. I need you to I need you to help me here. Because I don't want to downplay potential scandals, right? Like I you know, I I got so caught up in the the musicality, the delight of the banging scheme, right? That yeah. I maybe underestimated the the real ground-shaking, franchise-altering, sport-shifting implications of that. Because I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what's fun to say is banging scheme. And I don't feel like this rises to that level in terms of the the rocking that it might Mm do. But I also, and part of that is the thing I need you to help me with, right? So, um... I don't think it's good to to goof around with IL stuff, right? Like, it nope. seems bad to do. Um, there are rules against it. You shouldn't mm-hmm. do it. It's bad. Yes. 
I want to know so much more about the specifics here because yeah. I wonder if it is Astros like in that. And I want to be very clear. It, <laughs> let me get the in that out, you guys. Don't everyone start your emails. You should be, is what is going on here a um, a difference of degree where they are under Epler, they were doing this so much for so long in so many instances with such big guys like not physically big but like important like was it that the mat the degree was different than other franchises or was mm -hmm. there like a difference of of category here because my impression is that um there are other teams that are a little loosey-goosey with their mm -hmm. IL stuff and sometimes they're maybe doing a little bit of uh, his elbow. It's hurting. I don't mm -hmm. know why they're doing it in that voice. Like they're like a No, they probably barker. shouldn't. They would be extra suspicious if they yeah, did. Yeah, it would be really, you know, it's like, you know, the, the vocal equivalent of like a pronounced eye wink. Um, yeah. But I want to know so much more. You know, I want your help in engaging like the degree of outrage I should have about this, but also like how like like what what do we think, Ben? What do we think mm -hmm. the substance is here? Because did he get told like, hey, knock it off, uh, and right. then he didn't knock it off, and so then they were like, guess what? You can't work in baseball for a year. I don't want to um, accuse the commissioner's office of like. Um, making an example of him because I just don't know, but it kind of feels like they're making an example of him. But maybe he, you know, in service of a charade, like cut somebody's foot off. I don't know. Like that would be bad. I hope he didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, we would probably have heard about that. Yeah, you know, I think we probably would have heard of uh, heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. it's tough to say. I share some of these questions. It's yeah. not clear to me whether what they did was more egregious than what any other team did or whether they were just less surreptitious about it. Right. <laughs> right, whether they were warned or whether there was just documentation, there was a paper trail. Maybe right. they sent yeah. some untoward texts. Every now and then you'll hear a player often will be the one who will sort of allude to, if not outright cop to, not right. actually having been hurt. <laughs> and it's right. just, you know, maybe it was fatigue, which is sort of nebulous, or maybe it's just, I needed a break, you know, yeah. things weren't going great. I mean, yeah. that's been kind of a running joke for a while, just like invent some shoulder fatigue or something for someone who's not doing well, right? right. And it's rarely documented or proved beyond all doubt. And so it is Astros-like in the sense that everyone kind of came out of the woodwork and said, well, they weren't the only ones doing this. Right. Maybe they were the only ones doing it in that exact way. But, of course, there were reports of other forms of sign stealing. And then there were rumors and unsubstantiated claims by players and other people. So it is very much like that. Whatever right. happened here, I guess I'd be sort of surprised if – the Mets and Billy Epler were the only ones ever to do yeah. anything of that nature. Yes. And so maybe this is just, hey, don't do this. We are actually able to prosecute in this case for whatever reason. There was some right. sort of smoking gun. There was evidence. Maybe more will come out. Maybe we yeah. will know about specific instances or how they were caught here. But it raised the same questions <laughs> to me, right? Yeah. Like, that's kind of the case whenever there's some sort of punishment of a front office person, if it's for like bonus stuff with international signees, right? Mm -hmm. It's always just like, well, we know that some sort of shady stuff is kind of nefarious. Mm -hmm. So 
Are you making an example of a team or was this team worse than anyone else or were they just less careful? They hid their tracks less well and thus they were able to be called on the carpet for that. I don't know, but I agree that you shouldn't do it if for no other reason than there's so much roster shuffling that always goes on as it is. Right. That it would be nice if we could abide by the rules there because I don't think that's great for baseball in a number of ways. and. One would hope that the players being IL'd here were aware, were participants, were willing, right? Like, what is their culpability, right? right? right. If, okay. they, if they and know so, they're not heard yeah. and they're okay. going, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. kind so of a wrinkle, my, too. <laughs> this is my other question, which is like, and I don't want to engage in conspiratorial thinking. To your point, we just know so little about the specific violations here other than the sort of stretch of time over which they are said to have occurred. But, like, you know, both the the, the statement issued by the league and then the statement subsequently issued by the Mets make it sound like, I don't know, like he was a phantom IL in guys all alone. And I was like, I don't know that one can do that. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand how we can confidently say like oh this is the he is the you know we found him we he's the scooby-doo villain i mm-hmm. uh, again i'm not trying to excuse what he got up to here and i'm i'm not sure that i'm even um philosophically opposed to the the making of examples because i think that um there's a lot of of behavior in major league baseball that is either in a gray area in terms of the the literal sort of letter of the law, but is like obviously ethically dubious or mm-hmm. is just a direct violation of the rules, but is tolerated because of its prevalence. And I think, t- you know, telling folks, no, you got to knock it off. Like you can't really be mad if you're the guy they make an example of if what you're doing is clearly in violation of the rules because you do. You did break those rules, you know, and mm-hmm. the enforcement has to start somewhere. So I, I don't know that I'm really opposed to that, but it just does seem very, like, tidy, you know, in a way yeah. that um, if for no other reason than this sort of thing demonstrates that the Mets cannot help but be themselves to some degree, <laughs> even with changes in leadership, it seems you know, a little too tidy, you know? Mm-hmm. Again, I don't want to be conspiratorial Yeah, here. so MLB said it was at his sole direction and without any right. involvement of Mets ownership or superiors doesn't mean that no one was involved underneath EPRO or sure. some subordinate, I suppose right? that is true. Now, I don't know whether you would hold them responsible if they're doing it at the behest right. of their boss. And also, probably some of them have moved on because Epler left. And so Epler lieutenants, in some cases, maybe have moved on as well. But it is an odd sort of situation because you don't want to put players in the position of having to fake injuries or, no. or having to go on the IL if they feel healthy and they don't want to go on the IL. In Definitely some cases, not. they are willing participants of this, perhaps, I suppose, as long as they're still making their money. But is there pressure imposed on them to do that? In some cases, do they want a break and a breather? Who knows? I don't know. So I'd like to know a lot more about this. We know a little bit more than we did, and it has only whetted my appetite for more knowledge. Right. Because like for, you know, let's imagine for a moment that you're a, a seasoned veteran. You've made your money. 
you know, the implications for you as a player and for your future earnings, if you agree to Phantom IL stints, are like fundamentally different than if you're a young guy who hasn't gotten paid yet, because it doesn't take very many trips to the injured list for you to get a reputation as being injury prone. And that does yeah. have an impact on your future earnings. So like there are stakes involved for the individuals involved with this uh, above and beyond whatever the competitive implications are, which are important. I don't want to downplay those, but you know, for people wondering like, why do they care about this? Well, like that's one reason. And if you're, you know, if you're a, a young player, you're not going to necessarily be in a position to say, Hey, like I, I don't want to take that. I'll stint because what happens in a couple of years when people are like, well, you know, he he has these like recurring hamstring issues. So weird. And again, mm-hmm. I don't know that they're hamstring. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, there's been speculation about particular moves that may have appeared somewhat suspicious, but I don't want to report speculation because right. I don't yeah. know that that's the case. But I do hope that we get more details at yeah. some point. If only because it's important to be able to properly categorize scandals as serious and weighty and, Mm -hmm. you know, worthy of deep tones or funny. Because some of them are funny, you know, like (laughs) international bonus stuff, not funny. Like Mm -hmm. that stuff's not funny. You can't Mm -hmm. be goofing about that because like that's serious business involving minors. But some some stuff can be funny and like, yeah. you know, it would be nice if we got a scandal where it could be allowed to be funny because most of them are quite grim. So I'm I'm rooting for for funny here um, to the extent that it, it's really anything at all. It would be funny if some of the sillier and more ridiculous injuries that we talk right. about, maybe if they were the fake ones, if, yes. the, if the fake phantom injuries correlated yes. to how fake the injury sounded. Yes then that would be amusing. Now, that would be a bad strategy if you were trying yes. to conceal your crime Correct. here. But but if it were, you know, the guy sneezed and hurt himself or he cut right. himself on a can opener or whatever it was, right? If it, would if be it so were commensurate nice. with. <laughs> yeah, or like yeah. if they were very severe and it turned out that they were actually fake would be nice. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it would be so nice to... To know that everyone's testicles are fully intact, you know, like, and have yeah. always been, because that sounds painful, and I don't even mm-hmm. have them. Mm-hmm. I can <laughs> confirm. Friday <laughs> can show. Painful. <laughs> Friday show. So, I guess one way or another, it's another ignominious <laughs> end for a Mets GM. And, you know, maybe they've solved that problem because they currently do not have a GM. So your GM cannot resign in some degree of disgrace if you never hire one. (laughs) So life hack, I guess. Good luck to David Stearns avoiding some similar fate. Before we get to previews, it's been a while since we have blasted any stats. So I thought I'd give you a little stat blast here. Okay, so here's one stat blast question, which comes from listener Tim, who says, I'm curious about players who were very good for long stretches of time for multiple teams. Is there a way to query who had the highest war accumulated when playing on their second warriest team? 
So for Albert Pujols, his second most war per stint would be what he totaled for the Angels. For Adrian Beltre, it looks like his second most war was in his time with the Dodgers, not too far ahead of his total in Seattle, I think. Is there a list of players ranked by how much war was amassed on the third most team they played for, the fourth most? Well, now there is. Because, in fact, there is a way to query it. You reach out to Frequent Stat Plus consultant Ryan Nelson, and he does his retro sheet magic, and he determines an answer. So Ryan used Fangraph's war. It'll vary a little bit depending on sure. which war you use there. But I think you could figure it out fairly easily, at least the candidates for most war on a second team, on a, a player's second most war accumulated team. Kind of. Hard to figure out exactly how to phrase that, which is yeah. why he said worriest team. I guess we could go with that. But it's obviously going to be some of the best players of all time who happened to have multiple stints and did really well with a second one. So by Fangraph's war, it is Eddie Collins who amassed 55.9 war with Philadelphia, and that just barely surpasses Cy Young and his 55.5 war with Cleveland, as well as Tris Speaker and his 54.5 war with Boston. So it's sort of a photo finish with those three there, Eddie Collins, Cy Young, Tris Speaker. And then Barry Bonds is fourth with the Pirates and Randy Johnson with the Mariners and Jimmy Fox with Boston, Greg Maddox with the Cubs. I'll put the full list online for anyone who wants it. But Ryan broke it down by X number of teams, N number of teams, and found that the most war with a player's third warriest team is A-Rod with the Rangers. Mm. He compiled 27 war with them, and obviously he had more with the Yankees, with the Mariners. So his third warriest team was the Rangers, 27 war. Tommy John with the Dodgers, Nolan Ryan with the Rangers, Roger Clemens with the Blue Jays, Gaylord Perry with the Rangers, and then Adrian Beltre with the Mariners. Fourth team, Roger Clemens takes the cake mm. here with the Astros, 15.7 Fangraphs war with them. Followed by Jack Quinn with Boston, Dennis Eckersley with the Cubs, Roberto Alomar with the Padres. Fifth most war, Burt Blylevin with the California Angels, 8.4 war. So that was his uh, fifth highest total with the team, 8.4, narrowly edging out Gary Sheffield with the Yankees, Roger Connor with Philadelphia. Then we get to sixth. We're going all the way to eight here. So sixth, Mike Cameron with the White Sox. Mm. I don't even really remember the Mike Cameron White Sox era as well as his other stints. I, sure. I guess that makes sense because this is only his yeah. sixth most war. So I remember him with the other point teams of the, the stat plus, Ben. It is. So 5.1 <laughs> fan graphs war with the White Sox for Mike Cameron, just edging out Dan Brothers with Baltimore, Kevin Brown with the Yankees, and of course, Jack Glasscock with the Pirates. And then <sighs> seventh team, Bartolo Colon with the Expos amassed 2.1 war. That is the winner, beating out Dan Brothers, also well-traveled with Philly, and Kenny Lofton with the Pirates, David Wells with the White Sox. And finally, the eighth warriest team, David Wells with the Reds. Mm. I don't know if you remember the David Wells nope. Reds era. I sure do not. It happened, and it was record-setting. He accumulated 1.5 Fangraphs war with the Reds, edging out Kenny Lofton's one war with the Dodgers. Fun one. Thank you Fun for one. the question, Tim, and thanks for the answer, Ryan. 
Now, here's another question that Coleman sent in. With Joe Maurer's recent election, four Hall of Famers are from St. Paul, Minnesota. Maurer, Winfield, Morris, and Molitor. And they all, at one point, played for the Twins. It seems statistically significant. So I guess the questions are, what city has had the most homegrown Hall of Famers play for the team? And what is the largest number of Hall of Famers to all play for the hometown team? Like Twin Cities have four hometown Hall of Famers and 100% suited up for the Twins. And are there any cities with multiple Hall of Famers who never played for the hometown team? I realize there might be some distinction of what constitutes a hometown player or not. Coleman points out, also, there's one other Minnesota-born Hall of Famer from northern Minnesota, Charles Bender, who played in the 1900s and 1910s before there was a team in Minnesota. So I've discounted him on possibly two grounds, depending on how far away hometown is. So Ryan did the same sort of calculation. He only counted teams that existed at the time. So, for example, he said there was a player from Kansas City, but he played in the 1920s. Kansas City didn't have an AL or NL team in the 1920s. They had the Monarchs, of course, but this must just be AL-NL. So that player was not on the list. And he also used, I think, metro area. He used within 20 miles or so, counted as hometown, because this does get a little bit amorphous, maybe. So it depends how you define the terms. But the twins are indeed notable here. So the twins, as the question said, have gone 100%. They're four for four. They have uh, four hometown players in the Hall of Fame and all four played for the Twins. So that is indeed unusual. And in fact, there's uh, no one who really comes close to it with that many Hall of Famers. I mean, to find another 100%, it's just one of one with the Marlins and Rays players who played for those franchises. Now, if you want to know just the team with the most hometown players in the Hall of Fame, well, unsurprisingly, it's going to be teams that have been around for a long time and have a lot of good players. So the Dodgers with 25, the Yankees with 19, the Giants with 18, but their percentages are all in the same range where roughly a quarter of the hometown players for those franchises played for those teams. So six out of 25 for the Dodgers, five out of 19 for the Yankees, five out of 18 for the Giants. So for example, the Yankees, they get credit for Whitey Ford, Lou Gehrig, they get credit for Derek Jeter by this accounting He was born in New Jersey, not too far from the city, so he counts. Obviously, he was raised elsewhere for much of his childhood, but Ryan can't really account for that. We don't have raised as a database field, so this is really born in. And then Wee Wheelie Keeler was from Brooklyn, so he gets credit too, as was Phil Rizzuto. So those are the five for the Yankees, for instance. And if you look at uh, played for the franchise, just total without the 100% constraint, then it's still going to be Dodgers with six, Yankees with five, Giants with five, even though they have a much lower percentage. They've just had so many good players and so many Hall of Famers over the years that they have amassed the most. It's a accounting stat. They're compilers in that respect. So there's a pretty cool spreadsheet that Ryan put together here with all the teams and all the players if you want to check out the percentages and the classifications. But the Twins, what they've done, what their hometown heroes have done, 
that is pretty special and certainly yeah. an outlier. It's unique. It is, I think, a pretty cool distinction when it yeah. just so happens that your hometown Hall of Famers played for your hometown team. That's yeah. a, it's a nice thing if you can arrange it, but it's uh, difficult to arrange. And it just goes to show that people should have more respect for like the Twin Cities because uh, they're pretty cool, beautiful, mm-hmm. yeah. lovely. Yeah. I really regret talking about testicles. <laughs> it's okay. I forgive you. Thank you. The Phillies are the team with the most hometown players in the Hall of Fame who never played for the Phillies. Interesting. Yeah, which I guess if you were inclined to uncharitable huh. perceptions of Phillies fans, which I'm not, to be clear, but you might just say that, you know, if you're from Philly and you're maybe aware of Phillies fans' reputations for wow. being hard on Phillies sometimes, maybe you'd want to stay away. But <laughs> but but they also, they love their, their Phillies sometimes uh-huh. too. You know, the uh-huh. Phillies who perform up to expectations are, are wholeheartedly wow. embraced. Or even in Trey Turner's case, uh, if he's not performing up to expectations, they still rally around him. They uh-huh. give him the standing O. They encourage him to perform like his old self. So, you know, wow. I don't want to contribute to any misperceptions, any bad no. raps that uh, Phillies fans get. I'm going to interpret that little monologue as an act of generosity to me, your ho- your co-host, because you were like, people might be emailing her about Astros and or testicles, but no, they're instead going to email me about the Phillies. That's nice of yeah. you, Ben. That's like good looking out, I think. Thanks. Yeah, the, the Phillies hometown guys, Roy Campanella, Reggie Jackson, Tommy Lasorda is in there, Mike hmm. Piazza, Herb Pennick. Yeah, just a bunch of Philly area guys who didn't play for the Phillies, unfortunately. It'd be you know? nice if you could work it out somehow, even just yeah. like as an honorary, like ceremonial, you know, yeah. end of your career. Like, what? let's uh, have you play for the hometown team just for a little yeah. while. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, it would be nice, but it, it's also good to, like, to to share the wealth, I think. I mean, like, think about some of the geographic areas that generate, like, so much big league talent. Imagine if they hoarded all of that to themselves, you know, mm-hmm. like, that would be wildly unfair. So I think it's good for, you know, there to be a, a dispersal at times. And then you have, like, you know, mingling amongst people from different places and backgrounds. And that's very mm-hmm. beautiful, Ben. So I think yeah. it's actually a good thing. Yeah. It looks to me, according to Ryan's classifications, that 24 of the current teams have had a player from their hometown make the Hall of Fame, though of those, there are several that have not had a hometown player play for the franchise. Sure. The Phillies, the Rangers, the Astros, the Mariners, and right. the Rockies yeah. have have gone over with their yeah. hometown Hall of Famers. So far. So far. It also looks to me like the lowest rate of having hometown Hall of Famers play for a hometown team of the teams that have had at least one hometown Hall of Famer play for them. It's a tie at 11%, one for nine in each case. The Red Sox and Angels each have nine hometown Hall of Famers and only one played for the Angels or a Boston team. Tommy McCarthy in Boston's case, Eddie Murray for the Angels, and he barely played for the Angels. All right. And then the final stat blast question comes from Anton, who sends the subject line, same number, who dis? As the twins just signed Carlos Santana, I was kind of jazzed to think the name on my old Johan Santana jersey will be back in style, even if the number is wrong. But what if it wasn't? 
Could Carlos ask for Johann's 57 or maybe a more recent Santana, Irvin's 54? Has this ever happened before? Huh. Neither number is retired, but is there a rule against a player using the same number as a former player with the same last name? No, certainly no rule yeah, as, as long as the number's so. not retired. Yeah. yeah. So this is Anton actually in Minnesota. So the Minnesota contingent coming up strong here with the questions. And I got this one answered by Kenny Jacklin of Baseball Reference. And this is quite common, as you would imagine. There are just uh, only so many numbers and only right. so many names. And yeah. given enough time, you're going to get some repeats there. So sure. the most number of times that you have had a different player with the same last name, but the same number on the same team is four and that has happened with the Cardinals, huh. who have had four Clarks with the number 22. So How about that? Mike Clark, 1952 to 53, Phil Clark in 58, Jack Clark, 85 to 87, and most recently, Will the Thrill, Will Clark in hmm. 2000. So a long lineage <laughs> line of Clarks wearing yeah. number 22. You know, it's it's like in Japan, you know, they have a certain number set aside for the ace, which I think is right. kind of a cool tradition. I do With too. the Cardinals, it's it's a Clark tradition. If you're Clark, you got to wear 22. They probably had huh. some Clarks who didn't wear 22. I haven't probably. checked that, but I would imagine. <laughs> but some of these obviously are coming from years before fans wore jerseys. So... Right. It's not like anyone had a Mike Clark jersey from 1952 and they were like, yes, I can wear this again when right. Phil Clark and Jack Clark and Will Clark. Someone might have had a Jack Clark and then got to reuse it for Will Clark. But yeah, we have talked on an earlier episode about the fact that fans wearing jerseys is a fairly recent innovation in the grand yeah. scheme of things. And so a lot of these won't really apply to the reusing a jersey sort of conversation. Then there are a bunch of teams that have had three. And again, this is maybe more of a, a fun spreadsheet to peruse than it is a stat blast for me to read on a, a podcast. Mm. There are also some good father-son and brother combos in here too, which sure. is probably not a coincidence. Yeah. But yeah, it, it happens fairly often <laughs> as yeah. I mean, there's a, a spreadsheet here. I've got 469 matched pairs of, of wow. name and, and number with a team. So huh. can't really read them all. <laughs> but yeah. 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 It happens often enough. And if anyone has, has done this in real life, the, the re-gifting almost of a, a Jersey, this gambit, then I would like to hear your story right yeah. in, you know, what's old is new again. If you thought you, you had to mothball, you had to hang up your old Jersey forever. And then suddenly your team gets a guy back with the same surname and the same yeah. number. And look at this. I don't have to buy a new Jersey. I can just reuse it. It's a hand-me-down to myself. That's a, a handy yeah. dandy little quirk. I think if I were a player, I mean, you would want to, you, you can't do it endlessly, right? Like, there might be guys who you don't want to be associated with, right? There might mm -hmm. be some squirrely characters out there where you don't want people being like, is he like that other guy? Yeah. But I think that I would probably make an effort to to duplicate, provided that the player in question, if, if he were still alive, were uh, amenable to it. Because, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. guys get kind of territorial about these things right like yeah. some guys don't care about their jersey numbers really at all i don't think and some are very 
particular uh, if given the opportunity. But mm-hmm. um, provided that it didn't bother anybody, I think it would be kind of cool. It's like a, you know, extending the lineage of it. It would be neat. Yeah. It's like a buy one, get one free for jerseys, kind of. You get it's to reuse it someday. Yeah. There are actually 25 existing pairs of, of this sort just in 2023 alone where there wow. was someone wearing the same number on the same team as someone who had that same surname. For instance, with the Giants, they had Marty Perez in 1976 wearing number one. Then they had Nafi Perez in 2003. Mm-hmm. And then they had Roberto Perez in 2023. Huh. So I don't know how many Nafi Perez number one uni <laughs> guys, owners there were out there who were like, finally, 20 years later, I've been hanging on to this thing and right. I can reuse it for Roberto Perez. Probably yeah. didn't happen all that often, I would guess. But, but the option was out there. Yeah. All right, so let's take a quick break, and we will be back with Alex Spear of the Boston Globe to talk about the Boston Red Sox. Well, we're back and joined now by one of our favorite recurring team previewers, a reporter for the Boston Globe, the author of Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up, and Nesson's Stat Masterson himself, Alex Spear. Welcome back to the show. It is an annual delight. Thanks for having me. It is for us as well. And we've had occasion to talk about the Red Sox twice in recent days, even though we knew this preview segment was coming up. So maybe we can return to those topics to lead off before we get to the Red Sox offseason proper. One reason we talked about the Red Sox is that they're about to be documentary subjects and possibly (laughs) documentary stars. So are you auditioning for a talking head part in Netflix's 2024 Red Sox documentary? What have you you heard about how this came together? How do you think it'll turn out? How do you think it will affect this Red Sox season, if at all? All great questions that I probably haven't spent as much time thinking about as I uh, as I should have, given that it's about to be the reality show that, uh, that I finally get to be a part of. I mean, I've been watching Survivor like back when it <laughs> debuted. I've spent I spent several years watching American Idol and The Bachelor, and by God, uh, I can't believe that like I've given this little attention to the fact that I'm going to be maybe floating around in the background of, uh, of, of a reality <laughs> show. How it came together, I mean, clearly there had been interest in the part of Netflix in exploring it. I mean, this is this is such an interesting space, right? Like, Welcome to Wrexham is uh, is a delightful show. It makes people happy and feel good. You know, the the idea of using an entertainment product as a reality vehicle seems like it's uh, it's becoming a very popular model. And so I feel like the Red Sox uh, and Fenway Sports Group have been interested in figuring out ways of offering behind-the-scenes documentary uh, for a very long time. You know, I, I guess that this was... Uh, the confluence of someone willing to uh, willing to do it in the form of Netflix and a uh, and a very willing participant in terms of Red Sox decision makers, but it'll be very interesting to see how everyone reacts to that idea of being documented behind the scenes and yeah. 
you know, I have no idea how much we'll find out uh, about the goings on that we don't usually know about or not. You you wonder about the observer effect and whether or not behaviors are going to change uh, mm-hmm. among those who know that they're being documented or not. I guess the simple answer is I haven't been around something like this before, so I don't know exactly how it's going to influence influence the behavior around it. But it is awfully interesting that it comes at a time when the Red Sox have um, are kind of less recognizable than ever. Yeah, uh, that they're going to be that this is the time that they choose to be recognized. <laughs> Right. That's kind of what we talked about, (laughs) whether they would actually make entertaining subjects for this documentary. But I guess that will be the subject of the rest of this segment. At the very least, America meets Tristan Casas seems like (laughs) something that we can all get on board with. The other Red Sox subject we talked about recently is the quasi reunion with Theo Epstein. No, he's not sneaking back into Fenway in his gorilla suit. He is becoming part of FSG and uh, an advisor to the Red Sox, but also to Liverpool and the Penguins and will be involved in all of those operations, perhaps as a springboard to some other ownership role in the future. What do you make of this? What part, if any, do you think he will play in Red Sox day-to-day operations? I think fairly limited in terms of Red Sox day-to-day operations. Like He is very happy living not in Boston right now and uh, being with his family in Connecticut. That's not going to change. Um, I think that he'll probably drop into Fenway at various intervals. I think that there will be times when he drops into Fort Myers in spring training. But he was already going to have a kind of unofficial council role. I mean, he already has been in an unofficial <laughs> ownership role, right? He's yeah. uh, Arctos is one of the investors in Fenway Sports Group as it, you know, becomes this conquering sports empire. And, uh, and Theo sits on the board of Arctos. So he had been theoretically, at least, um, available to members of the Red Sox as a source of counsel. And so it was very unsurprising that like Sam Kennedy was calling Theo about the Red Sox job search in the fall, not proposing that he would be a general manager or head of baseball operations because that ship has sailed. Theo's moved on from that part of his life. Um, but instead, like, you know, getting feedback about different candidates. And uh, lo and behold, uh, the Red Sox chose a candidate whom Theo, who Theo loves and who he hired when he was with the Cubs. So I, I think that there's been a, a loose advisory role that he's been in a position to play within the prior outlines of, of his job and his professional life. Um, I think that Craig Breslow was going to be using him as a source of counsel one way or the other. And I, I simply think that now it's been codified a bit more and it allows him to have maybe a bit more of a hands-on role. Like, whereas it wouldn't have been appropriate, I guess, for Theo to have sat in on the interviews of the Red Sox chief baseball officer or in the Penguins hiring of a president of hockey operations in 2023, it ended up being appropriate. Uh, it will probably, it, well, I shouldn't say probably. Maybe it's appropriate now. Uh, if if there are <laughs> those kinds of if there are those kinds of hires, you know, it's been discussed already that he'll be involved in the hiring of a new Liverpool coach. Um, so maybe it it broadens his profile a bit, but doesn't mean that he's going to be stressing about which kind of marginal major leaguer at the back of the forty man roster gets DFA'd. I wonder if Poho has permeated the hockey lexicon to the extent that Pobo has uh, permeated the baseball lexicon. I could you- be wrong. I think that they might have. Like, I, I think that when I was I was surprised when uh, when the Penguins hired. I'm pretty sure that they uh, that they announced Kyle Dubas as uh, as the Poho. Um, but yeah, that's that struck me as a uh, as an anomaly. 
president of hockey operations and general manager for the Penguins. Yeah, well, yeah. of course you have chief baseball officer where the Red Sox are yeah. concerned. Which is like so. the worst title. Like, yeah. I, yeah. like, so the funny thing to me is that like when the Red Sox first busted out chief baseball officer, they did so in 2019 for Chaim Bloom. And it was after their, uh, after what I believe were unsuccessful efforts to woo away Derek Falvey from the Twins. And at that time, you know, I, th- I think that the Red Sox were engaged, like engaged in some like, you know, different exploratory, like, would this guy be interested in interviewing? Anyway, like they, you know, Falvey was on their radar then. He was certainly on their radar this time and declined a, a chance to interview. Anyway, uh, back then, Derek Falvey was the chief baseball officer of the Twins. The Red Sox used the same titles that the Twins did. They they hired a chief baseball officer and general manager. And then like two days later, the Twins decided to change those, uh, to change how they use, uh, how they use titles. And uh, Falvey became a, a pobo. We should probably talk about the chief baseball officer. You've anticipated uh, where I was going here, um, because as you mentioned, they've they've brought in Craig Breslow. What have you observed thus far in terms of how he is approaching assembling this roster perhaps differently than Bloom did? Do you see him? Obviously, he comes from a pitching background, and that has been an area that uh, the Red Sox have needed to improve in. What have you noticed of him so far this offseason, and what do you anticipate he sort of will understand his areas of maybe organizational emphasis to be going forward? Yeah, I think that the areas of organizational emphasis in this first offseason have been pitching infrastructure and also pitching infrastructure and thirdly, <laughs> pitching infrastructure. Um, it, it seems like that's been, you know, the lion's share. Like, they haven't done a lot in terms of the roster. There have been a couple of swap outs, right? Like, you know, you right. kind of see a greater emphasis on having options for different sides of platoons. So rather than having a bunch of left-handed hitting outfielders, like, okay, Alex Verdugo, goodbye. Here comes Tyler O'Neill. So they'll be able to mix and match a little bit more in terms of their outfield structure. There's been an uptick in trades uh, that the Red Sox have made. There was a real deficit of offseason deal-making by the Red Sox over the course of the high and blue era. There were other teams that became that like had a heart that found it hard to deal with the Red Sox, found that found it difficult to negotiate with the Red Sox over the last five years. They made some deals, they made some in-season deals in advance of deadlines. But after like so in the first couple of off-seasons under Chaim Bloom, you saw Mookie Betts getting traded. Uh not sure if you heard the Red Sox did once trade him. Um <laughs> and uh and then the next offseason they traded Andrew Benintendi on the one year anniversary of that, because why wouldn't you want to sell why wouldn't you want to remind people that you traded Mookie Betts? Um but then basically there were very, very, very few off-season trades after yeah. that. So what we've seen is that the Red Sox have been making some deals with teams that they hadn't necessarily made deals with in the last couple of years, relatively minor deals, right? Like, you know, I mentioned they dealt with the Yankees, which High and Bloom had done in order to trade away Verdugo and get some of them pitching prospects. They, uh, they dealt with the Cardinals, uh, in order to get O'Neill. Off the top of my head, I don't remember how, if they did a lot of deal making with, with them. They dealt with the Mariners. They sent Luis Urias, uh, over to the Mariners in exchange for Isaiah Campbell. The Atlanta trade, Chris Sale for Von Grissom, I think is kind of like the signature of the first offseason where it's like, okay, uh, we have this guy who, if you had, if you wanted someone for one game, you really like, ha- you really like having Chris Sale on your roster. If you're thinking about how to get better for the next five years, you probably feel better about having Von Grissom on your roster. There hadn't been a whole lot of deal making with, uh, the Red Sox in Atlanta in the last few years. So you, you are seeing trades as a mechanism for team building, but whether or not that's a function of Breslow or whether that's a function of necessity because their payroll is going down, I, I can't answer that yet. But beyond that, 
everything has been about pitching infrastructure because a lot of the rest of the Red Sox front office apparatus has remained relatively intact. But uh, you've seen them replace as pitching. Dave Bush had been the pitching coach. He was fired before Breslow was hired. The Red Sox brought on Breslow's best friend, basically, Andrew Bailey. And they hired Justin Willard from the Twins as their new director of pitching. And then, you know, very interestingly, recently uh, brought on Kyle Bodie from Driveline as an advisor on pitching R&D. So the impact of that is going to be difficult to appreciate immediately, whether or not We'll, we'll be able to appreciate the impact of that in 2024 remains to be seen. But I, I do know that that's where a lot of the kind of intellectual and emotional and, and temporal uh, capital has been spent this offseason. Well, I imagine that one of the places we could start to see that impact immediately in this season is with one of their free agent signings, Lucas Giolito, who had had to have had one of the more bizarre 2023 seasons of anyone in Major League Baseball, just from a transaction perspective, traded from the White Sox to the Angels, dumped on waivers, goes to Cleveland, doesn't pitch particularly well for them there. So I'm curious what they see in Giolito and sort of what their expectations are for him going forward. And if there's, you know, an obvious plan in place to sort of help him course correct back to the guy he was with Chicago. Haven't heard from them on a plan for course correction. Um, I do think that there's a sense that like everything was about location with him last year that, well, Giolito himself has talked about kind of having, uh, having lost his mechanics at times yeah. last year. I think how kind of the compact delivery that he has, uh, kind of unraveled a little bit. And, uh, and so when that happened, you know, both stuff and command ended up suffering as a result of it. The interesting thing about Giolito is that if you look at like just success in the, of stuff in the strike zone, like his swing and miss rate in the strike zone was still one of the highest among the free agents this offseason where he struggled was The fact that uh, I guess uh, there was also great vulnerability inside of the zone. So based on those 42 homers, like Giolito himself was like, I mean, I can't believe I gave up 40. Like that number is like so astronomical that it's almost (laughs) incomprehensible. Which is true. Like, it's insane that there there were two free agents uh, who, in theory, should both be attractive. And Giolito and, and Lance Lynn, who yeah. gave up homers that totaled in the 40s. Like, in yeah. an era where pitchers, like, don't throw 200 innings. Like, that's a lot of home runs, especially given how quickly they came once he started bouncing around between teams. But I, I think that the Red Sox hope is that this was a guy who remained quite effective for uh, for the first half of the season. And then there was kind of off the field tumult where he got divorced during the all-star break and then he changed teams twice. That's, that's a lot of personal upheaval in a short period of time. So uh, stability is, is part of it. And then I, I do think that the, the concerns about stuff weren't as pronounced as uh, location last year. Well, the list of Red Sox free agent signings begins and ends with Lucas Giolito. If we're talking You're not about- counting Cooper Criswell? That's a major league signing. <laughs> if we're talking about major league contracts. But that is a reason why Tom Werner's notorious quote about the Red Sox going full throttle this offseason has haunted the team ever since. Now, is there still some chance that they might have some major move to make? Did they have big plans that fell through? Does Tom Werner just have a different understanding of how engines work than most people? <laughs> how do you explain that quote in light of what has happened or hasn't happened this offseason? I hadn't even considered the possibility that like his uh, that the version of full throttle was, was with like a scooter or something right. that so like, tops out at 10 miles now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting prospect. He's on an um, e-bike. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, it was, uh, oh man, what was, what was the car that, the, that Homer Simpson invented that was like, you know, going oh, to have right. a top speed of 20 miles an hour. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I do think that they thought, you know, oh, we're going to be like, you know, they were probably all pumped and thought that they were going to be aggressive on Yamamoto at the beginning of the off season and then maybe, uh, failed to appreciate what his market was really going to look like in the end. So I, I think that maybe their interest in Yamamoto was legitimate. But I, I, I think that maybe the interest beyond Yamamoto uh, was uh, was a little bit, you know, in, in the top of the market especially, was somewhat limited. So I, I think it was a poor choice of words by someone who hadn't, like, this wasn't like a, a pre-planned, like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Craig <laughs> Breslow's press conference, and I'm going to say that we're going to go really fast. No, not really fast. Let me think. What are the words? <laughs> Full throttle this off season. No, I don't think that, I, I don't think it was quite uh, Wasn't as vetted. scripted as that, yeah, yeah, not quite as scripted as that. I think that it was a bad choice of words uh, on his part. Baseball people tend to be hopeful about their team when they think yeah. that you know when they're when they're thinking about them in the off season, and it's like maybe if we get this guy to be a little bit better on this guy. But I, I do think that the Red Sox off season has been less than what they anticipated it to be at that mm-hmm. moment. Um, I'm not sure. I think that there were probably already plans in the works for there to be some reduction of payroll. I'm not sure if the plans were in the works for there to be, at least as of this moment, this level of reduction in payroll. I also think that there's an ability to, you know, I, I don't think that they're done. I think that they were, you know, they were negotiating with Teoscar Hernandez. They they were trying to get involved on, you know, with uh, with bringing back James Paxton. Um, there have been guys who have been on their radar this offseason like mid-level free agents, not uh, not top end. The interesting question to me will be if the markets for Montgomery and or Snell, but mostly Montgomery collapse, then what? Because, you know, Montgomery has been living in Boston over the course of the offseason. So uh, his wife has a medical residency here that, uh, that I don't know how much time it has left, but it, it goes beyond this spring training. What what happens if his market collapses? Is there a scenario where it would make sense on that front? I think it's something that they haven't ruled out, but I, I still think that based on everything else that we've seen this winter, we would view it as a low likelihood event. But at the same time, a higher likelihood event is that they'll do something. What that mm-hmm. is, I can't say right now. Yeah, you really have to watch your words if you're a front office decision maker yeah. because those things can cling to you. You know, whether it's uh, Ryan Cashman's fully operational Death Star or <laughs> uh, like 15 years ago, John Mozalak said something about low hanging fruit shortly after he took over with the Cardinals, and Cardinals fans still cite that sometimes, even if it's kind of an innocuous comment and is taken out of context. Not that that's what happened with this full throttle comment, but it really can kind of hang around your neck if you say the wrong thing or you don't follow through on it. Of course, some of the responsibility for following through on these things lies with John Henry, who has borne the brunt of some significant criticism, too, and maybe well-founded criticism, which I think has revolved around two particular critiques, one being the lack of spending relative to the old Red Sox, where they were routinely at or toward the top of payrolls. Now they're outside of the top 10. So what has caused that? And then secondly, I think there's a perception of some inconsistency when it comes to front office marching orders and the people he's hiring and whether he's willing to stick with them when they do what they're supposed to do, right? You hire Dave Dombrowski to spend a lot and win and bring a championship to Boston, and he does that, and then he's gone shortly after. Then you bring in Heim Bloom to build up the farm system. He accomplished that to some degree, and yet he's gone too. 
so it seems like there hasn't been much uh, commitment to the people he has put in charge. So how would you assess each of those two charges? I guess let's start with the spending one, which is a little bit easier. Totally fair. Like, it's bizarre. This is uh, at least the Red Sox are engaged in uh, aberrational. This is an aberrational period now for them in the context of the entirety of the ownership period, right? Like the Red Sox had always been, had virtually always been a top five, top six spending team in Major League Baseball based on luxury tax threshold. You know, usually it would be about 50-50 whether or not they would go over the luxury tax threshold or stay just under it. But when they when they went under, barring a couple of exceptions, uh, they would get just under it, reset, and then go over it again. Whereas this would mark the second straight year that by design, they're decreasing their major league payroll. And not just by like a couple hundred thousand dollars, but like by more than that. And, you know, particularly noteworthy given that it's at a time when the, when the luxury tax threshold is going up. So that, that represents a departure from anything they've ever done. There was one other two year increment where their luxury tax threshold, their payroll as calculated for CBT reasons went down back to back years, but that wasn't by design. That included the 2012 sell off in August uh, of Josh Beckett, Carl Crawford, et cetera. So it required what I what I uh, like to call the Dodgers ex, ex machina in order to have payroll <laughs> go down in back-to-back years. And even then, it basically was flat in 20, like from the end of 2012 to 2013, when they went just like by like dollars under the luxury tax threshold in both years. This is weird. It's different. It feels like uh, and this is, you know, this is as much perception as it is anything that I've uh, that I've heard from anyone within their organization. It feels like there is um, enough of a sense that like larger ticket free agent signings have had um, have had disappointing returns that there is a greater desire to to see more internal development, see young players take steps forward and then add to that group with finishing pieces rather than trying to jumpstart that. The last time that they tried to jumpstart, like that they tried to put uh, major league talent, high cost major league talent in front of a core um, was the infamous offseason of 2014 to 2015 when they signed uh, Pablo Sandoval and, and Hanley Ramirez. And that did not go well. And they ended up being a last place team uh, in 2015. And um, they ended up digging out of that because their core emerged over the latter half of 2015. Um, but their, the success of that core occurred in spite of the whatever, like 150 million bucks or $170 million that they dropped on those two dudes. So it feels like there's, there is a different path being charted this time around. Everything I've been told is that this is that this isn't the new reality for the Red Sox, that like there will come a time when they're ready to spend again. But right now, that time hasn't arrived. And you, it's fair to ask why it's happening. You know, I, I know that they, they talk a lot about their, you know, the, uh, the budget for baseball operations as a whole has gone up a ton. Technology investments, they've hired, like they're, they've had massive growth in their front office, um, staff, but it's, it's hard for me to believe that the, that they haven't cut the overall baseball operations budget as well relative to what it was even seven years ago. And that's not even accounting for inflation. What was the second part of the question? <laughs> Has he given instructions to the people he's put in place and then when they've followed those instructions said, see ya, <laughs> too soon? Yeah, well, I think that that's, that's a really interesting one. Uh, I, I think that the Red Sox have changed strategic positions all the time. And like their ownership group ends up being 
uh, derided for it at times, right? Like they end up, you know, there's this like bias against signing pitchers in their 30s. And so John Lester gets a low ball offer in spring training entering 2014. But then after the 2015 season is a colossal failure, Ibid see above, they end up signing David Price for the largest contract ever given to a pitcher at that time. I don't think that, like, I, I don't find that, like, that kind of, like, quote-unquote flip-flopping, like, if it's in pursuit of winning, I, I don't think that there should be that much complaining about it. Like, you should be willing to reverse a position that's a bad one, right? Yeah. Um, the question is whether or not he's giving enough trust to executives to adapt to those realities. And, you know, with Dave Dombrowski, uh, the clear interest had always been in, you know, there are, there are, Dave's entire tenure was driven by kind of win now. I think that there had been, and I wrote about this in uh, in an updated version to Homegrown, but not really after that because then the pandemic happened and, you know, whatever. But um, I, I do think that, like, after the 2018 World Series, the Red Sox recognized that that there were going to be changes coming to that very special core. And I, I think that there was, in that offseason, like, John Henry had entered it with an expectation that he was going to, uh, to bring back Dave and, uh, Dave, you know, that he was going to sign Dave Dombrowski to an extension. But I think from, from John's perspective, there was enough difference in terms of their outlooks about what was going to be necessary in the pivot that, um, that he didn't necessarily feel like Dave was going to be able to take them away from the like Detroit Tigers style cliff. Whether or not that's fair is another question entirely, because I think that like one of the trades that gets lost in David Dombrowski's resume is like the unbelievable one dealing away Curtis Granderson and ending up with Max Scherzer. Yeah. Dave has engaged in a lot of different kinds of moves. He is discussed as kind of dealer Dave, win now, win now, win now all the time. It, it, in hindsight, you do wonder whether or not there was a chance for him to be more adaptable or not. But at the same time, it, it was at about that time that the Red Sox were also recognizing or at least felt that they had fallen behind um, what modern player development and front office schemes had looked like. And so they had to ask themselves whether or not they were going to be able to have a massive pivot, massive philosophical pivot in terms of how they evaluate and develop and acquire players um, that would be in keeping with the, you know, Dodgers and Astros of the world <laughs> if Dave was still in charge. And so I think that that was where, like, you know, so, you know, for what they were looking for at that time, like, you get it, right? Like, it's, you know, there's, if you feel like they're, like, the person who's in charge is not the one who's going to be able to lead into a different era, okay, like, you know, it, it, this is why companies sometimes change Who's in charge again? Like fair or not? Like it's 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 very fair to it's very reasonable to ask. Was that fair? Was that uh, giving Dave enough credit? But you know that's kind of the way that they saw the world. With Bloom, I don't think that the issue was the philosophical direction necessarily. I think that there was uh, there was concern about the the conviction of pursuing like kind of a clear philosophical direction. I, I think that in the 2022 and 2023 trade deadlines. The Red Sox had, you know, had been conflicted about the the idea of competing in the short term, kind of running back, you know, coming off of an exciting 2021 season. Should they trust that group to be able to, like, fight its way back into the playoffs or should they just give up on the season and sell, uh, sell, 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 sell? And they got caught in between with deals in both directions. 
and failed to make the deals that they probably should have made with like greater lucidity because that team was going nowhere. There were too many injuries and like, you know, but they just weren't able to say we're doing these deals like, you know, like and and approaching it with certainty. And that limited them in terms of what they were capable of doing in terms of trade partners. What, as I referenced earlier, there were teams that like didn't, you know, didn't love dealing with the Red Sox. Some that I think stopped dealing with the Red Sox um, because they found it difficult to get direction from them in terms of their interactions. And then in the 2023 deadline, um, I think that there was, again, the Red Sox were even closer to being in, uh, in position to contend. But again, you know, the odds were deeply stacked against them. And if they didn't make moves at that deadline, they were probably going to keep finding themselves in this like stuck in the middle position. And instead of having, you know, instead of having someone in the organization stand up and say, we need to be clear eyed about this. And like, we should be trading Justin Turner for Edward Cabrera, right? Like, you know, this would put us unquestionably in a better position of being the organization, the team, the roster that we want to be for the long haul than where we are now, instead of like, instead of just on this repeat cycle of like trying to cling to like fringe contention, they did not have anyone in the organization stand up to do that. And as a result, they did nothing at this trade deadline. And so I think that they wanted to find someone, you know, I think that 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 probably in conjunction with the fact that the Red Sox went into an absolute tailspin after the trade deadline led to them being convinced that High and Bloom wasn't the leader uh, for where their baseball operation needs to go. Maybe we can use that as a transition to talk about one of the, the last guys to get a big contract from the Red Sox, and that's Trevor Story, who has had... You know, a a disappointing uh, tenure in Boston so far, riddled with injury and underperformance. The throwing has been a problem. He came back uh, late last season, uh, didn't go especially well. So where where is he in terms of uh, coming back from injury, his readiness for camps? What are your expectations for him this season? I have no idea offensively what to expect from him. (laughs) Um, In 2022, like there were... He, he had a really hard entry into the season uh, on a number of levels, right? Signed yeah. right at the very end of spring training. His wife uh, gave birth to their first child, like, days after he arrived in camp. Uh, so he was immediately leaving spring training with good reason uh, yeah. in order to be with his uh, his wife and son. Uh, then comes back. So he's like, you're kind of scrambling to get ready for the start of this really weird season, uh, really weird April of 2022 coming off of the lockout. So he's behind the eight ball. He got really sick at the beginning of the season, not COVID, but, um, you know, just like bad case of bad flu or something along those lines. And so as a result of that, like he's, you know, he's diminished at the start of the season, like his, you know, just everything was bad at the start of the 2022 season. Then by May, uh, he had an incredible month, you know, hit home runs left and right, kind of propelled them very quickly as a dynamic player back into contention. Um, and then had an okay June and then had his wrist broken, uh, by a pitch in, uh, in July. And then, so injuries like prevented any kind of real look at him. It's, it's hard to say. So I, I don't know whether or not what I saw in May of 2022 was a mirage or whether or not the rest of the stuff like, you know, was a mirage, but never like only got a glimpse at like the full extent, brief glimpse at the full extent of his talents in the 2022 season. 2023, like no chance, right? Like miss you when you miss that 
that long a period of time, jumping back onto the, I, I guess I shouldn't say no chance. Like we've seen Bryce Harper do crazy things in terms of, uh, in terms of coming back quickly from major elbow surgery as a hitter. But what we did see was, was vastly improved defense, like the ability to play good, def- well defensively at shortstop. Um, yeah. But offensively, he was just underwater the whole time. And I don't, I don't, no, I'm always a little bit like there's uncertainty that comes with a guy who basically hasn't been able to perform in a normal, healthy fashion as a hitter in nearly two years. Um, he is healthy, whether or not that allows him to return to career norms offensively a- after kind of the loss of repetitions and all that stuff. Don't know. But like I said, he looked really good defensively. Um, he looked very athletic on the field last year. In, in that alone, he would represent some upgrade to the Red Sox. Would he represent the upgrade that they would hope for given the contract that they gave to him? We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, so as you said, he was not part of the problem defensively, but there was a defensive problem. If yeah. you believe StatCast, then the Red Sox had the worst runs above average value of any team. ICAST also suggested they had the worst runs above average. <laughs> yeah, right. Or, or runs below average in, in yeah. their case, well below average. So. Has there been any other attempt to address that? Do you think there could be some sort of defensive bounce back? Because the pitching issues are well documented, but of course, pitching issues and defensive issues kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, I think that one of my greatest surprises is that they haven't been more aggressive this offseason in terms of uh, in terms of overhauling their defense. Craig Breslow came in and said, you know, uh, on his first day, he identified very clearly the issues that anyone who would watch the Red Sox for any extent of time over 2023 had. The pitching was bad and the defense was worse. And so positionally, their their overhauls have been limited. Alex Verdugo is probably their best defensive player last year. He is no longer there. So they're rolling the dice a little bit with someone uh, in William Abreu, I think is probably penciled in as their primary right fielder, who they gave very little run to in the big leagues as a right fielder. Um, he's well regarded for his potential in right. He certainly has the arm for it, but TBD on that uh, on that position. Um, I think that one of their biggest defensive changes was that they let Justin Turner walk so that Masutaka Yoshida will, will spend less time in left field than he did in, in 2023, um, where he was, uh, he was an, a hit producing machine <laughs> given his, uh, deficient range in, in left field. So less Yoshida in left field. And then they traded for Tyler O'Neill, who's formerly a gold glove you know, left fielder. So you would think that on the days when Yoshida is DHing and when O'Neill is in left field, that would be uh, a nice upgrade. But otherwise, their only other position change was trading for Von Grissom, who comes with um, a lot of uncertainty about what kind of defensive second baseman he's going to be. Uh, there are some who think that his future is going to be as a left fielder. Um, there are others who are more bullish and note that he's young, um, but we don't know. They're expecting a lot out of uh, improved coaching with uh, with only limited changes to the coaching staff on the uh, on the fielding side. They're hoping to get defensive upgrades from a full season of story and from just better performance from infielders and that you and less you should in the outfield. I guess related to that, do you think that if that outfield configuration doesn't play the way they want it to, that it opens more playing time for Sedan Rafaela? Yeah, I think that uh, I, I think that there's a pretty good expectation that at some point in this season, uh, Rafaela is going to be up in the big leagues. You know, I think that 
They, they haven't closed the door completely on the idea of that being on opening day, but I think that the greater likelihood is, given that he has a well-documented proclivity to swing it uh, at a baseball that is released from a pitcher's hand, regardless of, uh, <laughs> of the subsequent um, the subsequent journey it might travel to or from home plate, that he'll be swinging. I think that the expectation is that Rafaela will be a uh, will be a contributor in the big leagues um, for a decent part of this year, assuming he's not traded. I think that the Red Sox are still open uh, to the idea of trading outfielders as they have been for much of the year or the offseason rather. And are we looking at a situation where, much like Ben Charrington's impact on the organization extended well beyond his tenure, we will be able to say the same about Heim Bloom as his investments in the farm system pay off? How is that shaping up? Are we far away from you being able to reuse the title of your last book for <laughs> the sequel next time there's a Red Sox champion built from the ground up? Uh, well, the, the challenge for the Red Sox is that I think that, uh, I think that, um, you could make great cases to do one about the Orioles or about yeah. the Rays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the landscape that they face, like the Red Sox objectively have a better, are in better shape in terms of their farm system they, than they have been, uh, in a few years, probably since, since the group of, that led to the 2018 championship was, was matriculating through the minors. The problem for them is that like they have a very nice group of prospects in double A. They have Marcelo Meyer and Roman Anthony. You can debate which one of them is the top prospect in their, uh, in their system. One of those two is, uh, and then Kyle Teal is a catcher who's also, um, well regarded. Like those are three guys who are in double A and you would probably project all of them as future major league everyday players, at least, and you hope for more or a lot more from them. The problem for the Red Sox is that they clearly, by consensus, and it, it's hard to argue with that consensus, rank behind the Rays and the Orioles, and for some people, the Yankees, um, in terms of the depth of their farm system, it is a daunting reality. So, you know, they they will be an organization that needs to continue to push the, the pedal down in terms of, uh, in terms of the players who were acquired under Heim Bloom, who are joining a, a couple of core players who were, uh, who entered into the organization when Dave Dombrowski was atop it, right? Like Tristan Cassis and Brian Bayo are both guys who became Red Sox while Dave Dombrowski was still in the system. That's kind of the way it works. There are always legacy prospects who follow behind, um, who follow behind a tenure, but you know, I, I think that in a best case scenario, like you can see a path for there to be a kind of coalescing core that would, to me, like 2026 is probably like a, uh, is probably the most, is probably when a window theoretically could open up again um, for this coming group. We'll see. They have an awfully daunting uh, landscape to face in the American League East, but they could jumpstart it if they make the right kind of um, external additions. But in, in terms of in terms of like elite homegrown core, they don't match that like that kind of Betts, Bogarts, Bradley group. It, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine their current big three matching Betts, Bogarts, Bradley. And in the short term, with the pitching, that was an area of weakness, especially starting pitching for the Red Sox last season. They were 22nd in Fangraph's war. As we discussed, there was a hope and a perception that maybe they would be investing there, and they didn't really. They added Lucas Giolito after subtracting Chris Sale, pending any additional moves that might be made. So they project now to be 18th in starting pitcher war and 16th in bullpen war. Is there any reason to think that there are enough internal options there to be hopeful in a much better pitching performance than they had last year? So that's the really interesting one to me. And I don't I haven't looked at this formally, um, but 
I, I, I do think that it's awfully that we are in like in this, you know, in this pitch design era, in this like, you know, in, in this pitch data era. Like, I, I wonder how often it is that uh, that you can get teams that, you know, if by changing the pitching infrastructure, pitching infrastructure is like a, you know, it's, it's such a, a a thing now, right? Like it's, uh, yeah, yeah, capital P, capital I, I guess. You know, if how often you're able to get collective, you know, kind of across the board improvements in pitcher performances. Um, you know, I, I, because I think that projections are based on usage patterns that have been that have been developed over years. Like what happens if you're able to step in? If Andrew Bailey, one of Andrew Bailey's strength, I think like one of, one of them is uh, as a Giants pitching coach was just kind of like stripping away stuff that wasn't very effective and saying like, you have these weapons, they're really good. You don't need to veer away from them too often. And if you stick with them, you'll get better performance. And like, sometimes there were utterly spectacular results like that. Witness like Carlos Rodon and Kevin Gossman um, developing into you know, into kind of like Cy Young caliber pitchers uh, under under his watch. So that's a long way of saying that based on personnel alone, you wouldn't think that there's huge reason why they should be that much better as a pitching staff this year than they were last year. At the same time, I, I think that, you know, it is an era in which you can be open to the idea of being able to get a lot more out of pitchers who have shown good pitch characteristics like Nick Pavetta is an interesting example of that, where last year he was awful for the first two to three months of the season, resulting in, in his demotion uh, to the bullpen. He ended up falling into this like weird hybrid role where like he would start one day and then like five days later, he would be a bulk innings guy who was taking on like six innings out of the bullpen. And then periodically he would throw an inning and uh, it looked like Red Sox pitcher usage in the 2018 postseason, but he ended up having dominant stuff over the course of that, like crazy good strikeout rate and really good performance. And that was based on developing a sweeper over the, in the middle of the season and turning a, a real struggle against righties into being utterly overwhelming against righties. So each of the pitchers who are, who are being given an opportunity to start for the Red Sox has shown pitch characteristics that suggest the possibility of performance exceeding what they've shown, whether or not they're able to tap into that is the great mystery of the season. Well, another mystery is one that we attempt to solve with the last question that we ask in these segments, which is Uh-oh. what would, not the old prediction question, <laughs> although you you nailed that a couple times, as I recall, but the updated closing question of what would constitute a successful season for this team, which is perhaps complicated in the Red Sox case by the fact that it's been tough to tell how to classify them and how they classify themselves and they're coming and going at the same time and are they rebuilding and are they contending? So how should Red Sox fans judge whether this season is a step forward or in the right direction? Oof, I should not be answering. That's an interesting question, right? Like it's a terrible answer to say that like, how would you judge success? Oh man, how do you like, it's like, that should not be a difficult philosophical question. Um, but when you're a team that's, that's not in obvious win now mode, uh, it does become more complicated. To me, people could have a lot more confidence in the direction that the Red Sox are going in if they're able to show significant growth on the part of multiple pitchers in the big leagues, uh, multiple starting pitchers in the big leagues. And if they are able to show legit starting pitching prospects matriculating in their pipeline. Because part of the reason why Adam Bloom was fired was because there are no obvious slam dunk starting pitchers yeah. in the Red Sox system right now. If Craig Brazel's charge is 
at least in no small part, to create a better pitching infrastructure, then you better show the ability to develop, to develop pitchers in a way that departs from the past. And I think that if the Red Sox are able to do that, to complement, like there are there are a number of good young position players uh, in their organization that you know I don't I don't think that it's an elite position player group, but I think that it's a, a solid good foundation, um, especially once those three double-A guys that uh, that were mentioned before get to the big leagues, um, then you would feel like the Red Sox are getting closer to the ability to like really maybe take some legitimate swings instead of that whole fringe contention dance that they were stuck in in 2022 and 2023 to some degree in 2021 because like they weren't a fringe contender at the deadline that year, but they were like they were way ahead of of where they thought they would be, and so there was some confusion about uh, surrounding uh, surrounding where they were then. But yeah, showing that they have the ability to help players improve, particularly pitchers improve, to me would represent success. All right. Well, it is always a pleasure to have you on, however the Red Sox are doing. We recommend Homegrown if people want to reminisce about the good old days. <laughs> it's a long time ago now. There was, there was one player left who was uh, profiled in any, uh, yep. with, yeah, with, with um, any depth in that, uh, in that book. If you want to follow the current confusing days, you can read him at the Boston Globe. And we hope that you'll still return next spring after you become a big Netflix breakout documentary. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to tell us what development deals are like. I, I yeah. To, yeah, my my personal development. Uh, yes, it's, uh, <laughs> it's 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 time for me to uh, yes get into the best spring training shape of my life. I think. All right. After one more quick break, we'll be right back with AJ Casavell of MLB.com to talk about the San Diego Padres. back and we're joined once again now by AJ Casabell who covers the San Diego Padres for MLB.com. Hello AJ. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So, the Padres regular season starts a little sooner than everyone else's. Everyone except the Dodgers, that is. They will of course be playing a series in South Korea prior to opening day for everyone else. How does that affect a spring training plans for the season, what they have to figure out before they embark? Well, it doesn't seem to have affected it much because you would say there might be a little bit more of a sense of urgency for what they have to get done, but there is still, I think you look at the roster right now and there's still a lot to get done. So it, it affects a lot of things in terms of building pitchers up and, and getting guys ready for, for it's, it's essentially two games that you have to prepare for and then you kind of go back into the rest of your, your season planning. So I suspect, I don't know this to be the case definitively, but the, they will be building a couple starting pitchers up faster than the others, maybe three of them in, in the event of an injury or whatever. But there's, there's kind of a, a, a condensed camp this season. They're going to be in Peoria f- until, I think, March 13th, and then they'll fly to Korea. They'll play two exhibition games there, and then they'll play the Dodgers in two games that are that are, I know, they're just two regular season games, but they feel, at least uh, fr- from the Padres' perspective, relatively important in terms of, I mean, this, these are the Dodgers who went out and spent all the money in the offseason, and, and the Padres lost Juan Soto, and they've had the offseason that they've had, and, and they're going to want to win those games pretty badly. So it's 
it'll be an abridged camp. It'll be an abridged camp with a new manager. I think it'll be it'll be kind of interesting. Here we are with a month to go till Korea and still some question marks on this roster. Maybe we can start with some of the question marks. And I think um, perhaps I'll start with one that involves a guy who has been a Padre for a while, but will be starting the season presumably at DH. What is the current state of Manny Machado's health? And when do you expect that he might be able to play the field again? Because right now, I think on our roster resource depth charts, we have Matthew Batten uh, slated in for, for third base duty, which I imagine is not what Padres fans either want or are expecting. No <laughs> offense to Matthew Batten. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, if, if Machado opens the season at DH, I would have to assume they'd sign a first baseman and Cronenworth would, I mean, they're going to, I think they'll sign a first base type anyway to bolster their depth, depth DH spot. And then Cronenworth slides yeah. to second and Hassan Kim slides to third and you kind of have that figured out. But as things stand right now, yeah, Matthew Batten is the third baseman or Eggy Rosario or, or some utility guy who wouldn't necessarily be be a, a starter over there and so you want to get Manny Machado healthy as fast as possible that seems seems obvious but I mean he can still be impactful if he's just if he's just DHing and his tennis elbow kind of limited him so much last season to the to the point that I think his numbers took a little bit of a hit he still hit 30 home runs and had a had a pretty good season by most standards but he wasn't necessarily Manny Machado right now I think the hope is that that he's playing the field relatively quickly. Like it could happen sometime in April. He's throwing right now. He's he's kind of building up slowly. If the Padres absolutely needed Manny Machado playing third base, there's not a zero percent chance that he could be ready by the start of the season. It's just not something that they necessarily want to rush because they know they can still have his bat in the lineup, and in theory, they could have a pretty good defender in Hassan Kim at third base, Jake Cronenworth at second base, and and whoever they end up signing to kind of fill that first base DH type spot. They they have options, and so they don't want to rush Machado. But I think this more than anything else, the fact that he he got the surgery for tennis elbow, which has bothered him for most of the past two seasons. I mean, he's he's managed to play through it, so it probably hasn't gotten the amount of notoriety that that it otherwise would have. But he's he's kind of toughed it out through some pretty serious pain pain, which became a little bit too much to bear in the last two months of last season. And so, probably a good thing for all involved in all involved that he got the surgery. And if if he's back to his usual self this season. Um, if he has to play a few games at DH to start the year, that'll be okay. So big picture, it's been a whirlwind. It's been a roller coaster <laughs> for the Padres, <laughs> I guess, for the entirety of A.J. Preller's tenure in one way or another, but especially lately. So how do the Padres view what happened last season? Because we certainly wrestled with what to make of that. There were dueling, long-form, deep postmortems about what went wrong with that team, what went wrong with the organization. We certainly looked a lot into the luck and the timing and the fluky aspect of it, but we probably talked more about the Padres than just about any other team, certainly any non-playoff team, other than maybe Shohei Otani's team. And that's partly because they were not expected to be a non-playoff team. So how did it happen? What is your takeaway from that season? And what do you think the organization's takeaway from it is? I, I still don't have the answer to that question. And I've spent, <laughs> I've spent probably too much time thinking about just what happened in 2023. I, I'll say it, it kind of maybe changed my my perception of, of like the sport as a whole, because that team mm -hmm. full of that many stars shouldn't be shouldn't be an 82 win team it shouldn't have been a team that missed the playoffs and i was there every single day and they didn't they they just so drastically underperformed and they even underperformed kind of what they should have been if you look at some of the expected numbers and everything else and and 
maybe I changed my perce- perception of, of clutch and of what goes into, I don't know, situational hitting and all those kinds of things. It was just such a weird year on so many fronts. I think the organization's takeaway is I, they, they still really think that despite some of the losses, some of the, some of the obvious roster losses, that the, that the talent is there and that it can be turned around. But I think maybe more than that, like this kind of disaster of a season just can't be glossed over. There needs to be some, some kind of material difference in, in the way they go about things in 2024. We haven't seen how they, how they plan to do that. They've kind of overhauled their, their farm system in a, in a pretty big way since they made all those trades at the 2022 deadline that depleted it. And so there's maybe a sense more to, to build from within, to have some cohesion. I mean, I think my perception of how much kind of clubhouse chemistry mattered changed a, a decent amount last season. And, and that's not to say it was, it was maybe as miserable as some of the, some of the reports indicated, but I, I, I just think there's, there's maybe more to be gained from pulling in the right direction and from just having a group that when, when things went wrong last season, it, it felt like they were, they went really, really wrong. It felt like each, each win felt like, well, this is what the Padres need to be doing. And the clubhouse afterward, the, the players kind of felt like, well, this is what we need to be doing on a nightly basis and it wasn't wasn't that great and each loss felt like a crisis and it started to spiral a little bit and that frankly needs to change and i am 100 percent certain even though they really wouldn't say this until september last season that the weight of expectations were a part of that they will not be dealing with that in 2024 because i think by most by most expectations they're supposed to be middle of the road maybe a fringe playoff team and knowing the competitive nature of the guys in that clubhouse that that should drive a lot of them to work to be better than what they were, and that's not to say that that that, that wasn't there in 2023. But the expectation, the weight of the expectations, I think, got to them a decent amount because when they weren't accomplishing what they felt they should be accomplishing, it frankly got kind of miserable in that in that clubhouse just because they weren't doing what everyone in there thought they should be. And all of that, of course, was occurring against the backdrop of a pretty dramatic or at least dramatic seeming change in the potential financial fortunes of the franchise. So obviously we had Peter Seidler's unfortunate passing. There's this uncertainty with their RSN picture. They have moved to reduce payroll pretty meaningfully from where they were last year uh, over the course of this offseason. And I'm curious what your sense is of first sort of how permanent that change might end up being and what sort of resolution um, they might be seeing on the RSN question going forward. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I the, the permanence of it, obviously, we can't know until a few years down the road, probably, but their payroll last season was was top three in the league. And, and right. I think if this is still a group that's top 10 in the league, which it, which it could potentially end up being in 2024 if they make a couple more moves here and there. They'd be content with that, and they should be able to build contending rosters with that. And for a market in San Diego that hasn't often had top 10 payrolls, that's something you look you look to going forward and say, all right, well, what can we do with what we've got and with some of the commitments we've made in the past that might hinder what they're able to do? And so the, the permanence of it, I think, is is TBD, but they've they've essentially said that we're still here to compete and we're still here to keep it in line with some of the some of what they've what they've captured in the city, like the Padres were not good last season, but they still sold out. I want off the top of my head, I think it was fifty eight games, something like that. Uh, right. They still had a re- really really fun atmosphere at the ballpark. The city's really behind them, and if they just take steps back in terms of who they're paying and what the roster looks like, that that is going to wane. And so, uh, people in power have said this is still a group that wants to compete. 
they might be doing it a little bit different way, maybe building from within, maybe using some some prospects that they've that they've managed to recoup in in the last couple of years. But going forward with some of the, the questions on the on the RSN and in terms of who's running the show, we just don't know the answer until we see what they do with their payroll the next couple seasons. I, I still think there's there's a pretty clear potential for the Padres to to build on what they have in San Diego still, even despite their their struggles last season. They, there's a lot of support from the city, and the games at Peckle Park are really, really fun, and they're usually packed, and there's a revenue stream to be gained from all that. And yes, they have some financial commitments from uh, the past couple years that might not look so great going forward, but they also have a, a pretty solid group of young talent that can kind of complement some of those guys. And I think obviously the Dodgers are the gold standard in the NL West, but the Padres should be looking at, at being a playoff contender as often as they possibly can. And the man at field level overseeing that talent will be a new one this season. Mike Schilt will be managing the Padres after all the intimations of trouble in not paradise exactly. You can't call the Padres paradise, but after all the trouble between Melvin and Preller reportedly, the Padres made the unusual move of just letting Bob Melvin leave to go manage a division rival. Mike Schilt has come in as the replacement. So can you tell us a little bit about that parting potentially and what the hope is for a better relationship or better results under Mike Schilt? Yeah, the the parting I think is kind of, I mean, it, it's it's fairly simple. I think it was just one of those things where everyone felt it was best for, for all involved. And Bob Melvin's going home to San Francisco and the Padres after what was a disappointing season where things didn't quite work out. I know Bob Melvin's maybe not the highest on the list of blame on that on that on the spectrum there, but I think it's if if he wasn't the manager going forward, I think no one would have been surprised if they fired him after the season. But instead, just letting him go to San Francisco, it's something that's kind of better for for everyone involved. Mike Schilt, one of the things with Mike Schilt, and, and obviously there was there was a lot said and written about the relationship between Preller and Melvin last season, and it, it wasn't great. But Mike Schilt will be the first manager under Preller in his time with the Padres that has worked directly with Preller in in San Diego. I know Jace Tingler and AJ Preller had had spent some time together in Texas, but there's a sense that that kind of relationship and the intensity that AJ Preller brings and it's it's intense. He's he's very active all the time and he's <laughs> he's kind of very demanding and and that's something that I think maybe Mike Schilt the Padres feel can can thrive in and can understand heading in what what it'll take to work with that and to make the team to make the team benefit from it because there, there's obviously no one way to do things and the, and Preller does it intensely and Mike Schultz a pretty I mean he's he's from, I mean we only have so much time working with him so far but he's he's down to earth but he can get intense and he lives and breathes baseball in much the same way I think Preller does at all hours of the day and so. Obviously, it remains to be seen, but I think the fit the Padres feel is is pretty strong going forward in, in the personalities. And that's not something you can really know when you haven't worked with a guy directly in the organization before and, and Preller hadn't with either of his with either of his four previous manager hires. I want to talk about the, the guys that they brought in in that Soto deal, particularly in the starting rotation. What did this organization see in Michael King and Randy Vasquez that made them think that this was worth moving on from Juan Soto for? Two parts to that answer. The, the first part being the, the contract that Soto was, was going to get the Padres with their payroll being what it is. They, they felt that I think if you're if you're eating 
the Soto contract, you probably get a little more in that return. That being said, the Padres are pretty happy with what they got in there on the pitching side of things because yeah. they had like no pitching. They they had you yeah. Darvish and Joe Musgrove and and then like nothing else. And so they had they had to find their pitching somewhere and by trading one of the best hitters in baseball, you can go out and get four different pitchers who can help out. And so Michael King is someone that that I heard the Padres were very interested in for a while. Not that I don't think the Yankees were interested in parting with him unless they were going to get something like a Juan Soto, like like a, a real kind of meaningful guy. Michael King, you look at what he did at the end of last season after they moved him to the rotation. That's the type of guy that the Padres can kind of dream on. And, and they've had a lot of success with, with finding pitchers and, and making them better. I think that's kind of part of, of what Ruben Niebla has done. They just they just opened a, a, a pitching lab and kind of nearby in, in, in San Diego at Point, with Point Loma Nazarene University. It'll be interesting to see kind of how where they go with King, because King obviously hasn't thrown more than 105 innings in a in a big league season. He's spent most of his time as a reliever, but his stuff is clearly there to be a front of the rotation kind of kind of guy. That's kind of the first piece of this. Then you have Randy Vasquez. You also have Johnny Brito, who should be in the rotation mix, vying for spots. But the Padres have also said that they're still actively looking to add starting pitching. And so I don't know if you want necessarily Randy Vasquez as your number four starter, but if he's your number five, maybe six, maybe kind of fringe guy, then that's a useful piece. And Johnny Brito can kind of fill the role that I think Nick Martinez has filled in the past of a swing man. And and they also got Drew Thorpe in that trade, who significantly helps the farm system and could be a pitcher in San Diego for a long time. Like all of a sudden, when you make that trade, the Padres have the pitching, the pitching depth to kind of fill out what they needed. Now they still probably need one or two two more starters, but it's not so urgent and so pressing where they're desperate. Whatever happens with the Padres going forward, Fernando Tatis Jr. will be a big part of it. And what happens to them is largely dependent on how he does. Now, his comeback last year overall went quite well. Defensively, he was superlative, maybe exceeded expectations. So if you have any insight into how that transition worked out so well, I'd be interested to hear it. Offensively, he didn't bounce back to his old self. If you look at his underlying stats, the batted ball quality, he probably got a little unfortunate with his actual results, but even the underlying quality was not quite peak Tatis. So what is the expectation for him offensively, and can he keep up that incredible glove work? His expectation is that he can bounce back to MVP caliber. We kind of talked to him at the end of last season, and he felt like, I mean, he had missed 18, 18 months of baseball. And so he like, it's, it's hard to just kind of come back in and, and be yourself from the, from the get go. What I will say to his credit, you asked about his defense and, and what, mm-hmm. what went into that. Like it was, I think more than anything, just a, a full out commitment to, to that, to making himself the best possible right fielder. We saw in 2021 when he moved to the outfield uh, kind of briefly, and he was switching between the outfield and shortstop. He wasn't as, probably as engaged as he was in 2023. I mean, this was when when he moved to right field, he was kind of so desperate to get back on a baseball field, having missed the, the 2022 season with the with the motorcycle accident and the PED suspension. I think he kind of humbled himself and and really set out about working as a as a right fielder to be the best right fielder he could be. And then like you go from there with with the requisite work ethic to be really, really good. And he has all, all the obvious tools. He has the arm, he has the the range he has the speed so that's kind of really all it took for him to 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 do that in right field and i think that that 
you kind of saw that also with his health, the fact that he was on the field pretty much every day after he returned from the suspension. And so some of the things offensively, I think he, he probably was better than what the numbers said, like like you indicated, but he will say he wasn't as good as he thought he could be. I think he has brought up the comparison a couple times of Ronald Acuna Jr., who missed the time, I think it was three seasons ago, and then two seasons ago he wasn't as himself, and then last season he was, he was an MVP. Um, that's what Tatis is kind of viewing, and that's kind of what he's working for. I know he played some winter ball this year because he really felt like he missed too much time to have felt great all the time on the field. And he wants to kind of get back to get back to himself. I want to actually ask about a guy who isn't on the big league roster yet. And we can maybe talk about some of the, the other prospects who might end up helping San Diego either this year or going forward. But I don't know that I can think of a, a recent precedent that's quite as impressive as sort of the impression that Ethan Solis has been able to make on prospect towns. This guy for, you know, listeners of the show will have heard us talk about him a, a little bit, but he is not yet even 18 and um, is a 60 future value prospect for us at Fangraphs and has littered top 100s this offseason. So they have been pretty aggressive with his promotion uh, schedule. I, I doubt that we will see him in the majors this year in any in meaningful capacity, but is that impression correct? Is AJ going to surprise everyone and bring Ethan up at some point early on here? I mean, he'll he'll be up earlier than I think most of the c- comparables would be up. Like we can we can obviously yeah. say that he is. When they signed Ethan Salas last January, uh, I had people in the organization telling me it was the best player they've ever scouted, and I like it was just so there there were so many superlatives heaped on this 16 year old kid. I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit in terms of just like it yeah. can't be that it, it can't be like that really. And and one I mean one of the things they did was they're generally pretty pretty protective. Maybe protective is not the right word, but they're generally they generally don't throw their prospects out to the media very often. They like to keep their minor leaders maybe a little sheltered until they kind of are ready for the big leagues. But when they signed Ethan Salas, they gave him a locker at Petco Park and let him speak to the full throng of reporters in front of it and and then had him work out there and that's just that just kind of tells you what they feel about this guy and then they then they move him as fast as pretty much anyone i can remember to high a and then eventually double a and he's only 17 years old it's i mean given all of that no it wouldn't be crazy if toward the end of the season ethan salas is in the big leagues i don't don't think that's like they have what they feel is a pretty solid catcher compliment in Luis Camposano if he can kind of build on what he did last season and then Kyle Higashioka behind him. And so I don't, I mean, maybe something would have to go wrong. There would have to be an injury, but that's kind of the way baseball works. Um, so I, I just don't know if maybe this is the year, but man, they, they really think highly of Ethan Salas and probably rightfully so. He's been moved quickly. And the thing I keep hearing, and I know there's, there's some, scouts and maybe some rival organizations that are kind of skeptical of the way the Padres are doing it. Like they have this really, really good young talent. Why are they, why are they moving him as fast as they can without getting him the seasoning they can? I think their counter to that is always, he is as strong mentally as any prospect they've had. And so they can, they can push him. And if he fails, it's not going to maybe affect him the way it might affect some other 17 year old kids. And so it'll be, it'll, I mean, he's, going to be invited to big league camp and I'm already that's probably among all the Padres the guy I'm I'm most fascinated in seeing how he does and seeing how he works with with guys that are almost guys that are twice his age you Darvish Joe Musgrove guys like that and it'll it'll be really really kind of cool to see how he does because from everything I've seen he doesn't he certainly doesn't carry himself like a 17 year old 
Well, and then I also want to ask about a guy who, gosh, seems like a, a grizzled veteran in comparison to Ethan Salas. Uh, that's Jackson Merrill, who has mostly played shortstop as a minor leaguer. But I'm curious sort of what you think the long-term projection for him is from a position perspective, because Ben and I have joked many, many times on this podcast that it seems like uh, at times the entire Padres uh, roster is made up of shortstops <laughs> or at least infielders. And so I could see a path to playing time there being a little bit difficult. But do you think that he has a future in the outfield complementing Tatis? It's possible. And if you look at the roster right now, like that's what makes the most sense if they were to move him quickly. Like there's an opening in left field. They don't have a left fielder right now. And so if, if someone were to win that job, if some young guy were to come up and win the job in camp, like I think they'd be open to that. I think they'll also look to sign someone, but maybe not, maybe not like a huge potent bat where they would leave that possibility open. They do have a lot of shortstops. I think there's obviously questions around what happens with, with some of those shortstops. Like, how long does Xander Bogart stick it short? Does Ha-Sung Kim, like, I mean, if he's only under contract for one more season. If he's gone after this season, he's their probably best defensive shortstop. Like, there's a path you could see to shortstop being available, but then there are question marks about Jackson Merrill's glove defensively and whether he could stick there. And so... I think the way the Padres are approaching it right now is just kind of what they've always done with with shortstops, and that's let them play shortstop as long as they possibly can until they have to move them. Jackson Merrill is the type that could probably thrive if he ends up at second base or if he ends up in left field. or He'll get... He's another guy who'll be in spring training this year, and another guy I'm really excited to, to kind of see how he how he fares, because unlike Salas, I think there's a outside chance that he makes makes the roster or at least makes the roster sooner in the season and it'll be interesting to see like where they use him how he adapts to those different positions i'm sure he'll play some shortstop and if he how he looks defensively and and it'll all be interesting to just just see what that path is for him because he can hit and the padres don't have a ton of depth right now and even though it's pretty clear they're going to sign a couple guys maybe for the outfield maybe a, a dh type like their bench is going to have two or three places available for these young guys for some non-roster invites. And if Jackson Merrill really steps up in spring training, he'll have a chance to win a job. It is pretty impressive their single season turnaround in prospect rankings or in farm system rankings because they completely cleaned out their system. And it was a, a testament to the strength of their system and its depth that they kept making move after move after move it, just trading an entire farm system. And yet they still seemingly always had someone left. But last year at this time, Baseball Prospectus at least ranked them 27th and now BP has them sixth, which they say is largely because of the top more so than the depth. It's the guys at the top. It's the blue chippers that we've just talked about. But that's still not a bad turnaround, given that they've done that without a rebuilding phase in the interim. Yeah, it's, imp- it's impressive. And I think this is this is really the third time they've kind of overhauled their farm system into something really, really good. Uh, after trading a lot of guys, and this, the the last time they did it, when after they traded for Musgrove and Darvish and Snell, and and really kind of went for it in 2020, they made a bunch of trades at that deadline. They still felt that their farm system was really really good internally, and they dropped down everyone's rankings, and they they still felt, hey, we got some really good guys that can turn this into a pretty good farm system pretty quickly, and they were right. Like the farm system was good enough to trade for Juan Soto and Josh Hader at the 2022 trade deadline, but. After they made those trades, I think internally they kind of felt, all right, now now our farm system is pretty thin, and and I mean they have confidence in themselves at building that building out a, a solid farm system, but they had to go do it, and they did. They made some pretty good draft picks. They obviously signed Ethan Salas. I think it's it's not as deep, like you said, as it was because they traded so many guys in that 2022 and and 
previously, but they've they've turned it into a farm system that I think more than anything, like given everything they traded a season and a half ago, they've turned it into a farm system that can produce guys that can help the major league roster pretty quickly. And that's a that's a that's a testament to what they were trying to accomplish because they don't necessarily have some of the payroll flexibility that they did before, and they're gonna need some of those guys to impact the big league club. So if they get production from Graham Pauly or Jacob Marcy, guys that were drafted probably later than 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 what their current prospect rankings think, like that's those are useful big league guys. And they managed to find Jackson Merrill. They they signed Ethan Salas. They just signed the the top the top prospect of the last class, Leah DeVries. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where this farm system goes from here and whether they choose to use that farm system to acquire guys, which maybe they went a little too heavy on in the past. But that's also in part what what farm systems are for. And this is a roster that that clearly is lacking a little bit of talent right now. So. I'm just curious to see what they how they view the farm system this time around because they have in the past been so ready to use it to trade for guys and right now it doesn't seem that they are but it also seems like they might need to. You've mentioned a couple of places on the roster where they might need to still go out and sign uh, a couple of guys but I think that we can probably say that their bullpen is done that's an area where they've been quite active this offseason they brought in Yuki Matsui they signed Wandy Peralta they brought in Wusak Go so what is what is the free agent strategy here? I mean, all of those guys are good. All of them ranked, uh, I, I believe, with the exception maybe of Peralta as top 50 guys for us at Fangraphs. But it is a, a surprising area of concentration given some of the other areas on the roster that they need to improve. Yeah, the bullpen's really interesting because I think it's so it's so volatile. Like they like Go and and Matsui haven't pitched in the big leagues before, so we don't really know what we're going to get from them. Robert Suarez was awesome in 2022, but last season. He was hurt, and then he came back, and he had a sticky stuff suspension, and he kind of struggled when he did pitch, which wasn't that much. And, like, those are three of the guys that they're really relying on at the back end. And so they have a pretty – I wouldn't – I don't know if I would say a deep bullpen because every bullpen needs to be deep on paper going into the season. You can't – I don't think you can have a deep bullpen until they're doing it in the season. But they have a decent group of arms, but they haven't gotten that guy to replace Josh Hader. And so they're looking kind of internally for that, whether it's, I don't know if Matsui is the closer. I don't know if, it, if Robert Suarez is the obvious guy that, that you look at and you look at kind of what he did in 2022 and think he can kind of fill that role, but probably not in the way that Josh Hader did. It's interesting because the, the bullpen, it's the one area, I think a, about a month and a half ago, they clearly needed outfielders, they clearly needed starting pitching, and they clearly needed relief pitching. And they've really aggressively addressed the relief pitching aspect without either of the other two. And so this bullpen, like you said, I don't know if it's complete, complete, but it they can go into the season probably content with what they've got with the obvious question mark being who's at the back end, who's pitching the ninth inning. And I, I think we kind of know the main candidates, but can they handle that ninth inning over the course of a season? So we always end these by asking what would constitute a successful season for the team in question. And I think last spring, the answer was pretty clear. Oh, we want to be a playoff team. Not only that, maybe we want to win a division, which seemed realistic, right? So now things are a little murkier, a little hazier after some of the sell-offs, some of the departures. So what is a realistic hope? What do you think the Padres aspire to be? What would Padres fans expect them to be or be disappointed if they don't achieve this year? Yeah, I think this one's probably a little clearer than even it was last year, because last year they wanted to be more than a playoff team. They, like, mm. they, they had kind of higher aspirations than that. This year, I think if you look at like if you look at the talent, the baseline of talent on the roster and the players they have and Xander Bogarts, Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado, like those are the core offensive players, you Darvish, Joe Musgrove. There's star power there enough where if you complement it 
and you get a, a decent amount of health, like that should be, I think, a playoff team if the other things fall into place. Now, right now, those other things are not in place. They still have question marks on their ros- roster. They have question marks with who the prospects, like which prospects can step in and, and fill those holes on the roster. But I think going into the season, the the what constitutes a successful season for the Padres is just, are they a playoff team or are they not? And if they if they reach the playoffs with, I mean, there's there's extra places available. The top six teams are playoff teams. I think last year's 82-win team, the Padres feel like, I don't want to say they feel like they were a lot better than that because they are what their record said they were, but they feel like they had more talent than that, and they feel like even though they've lost, I mean, they lost their their best hitter, Juan Soto, they lost their best starter, Blake Snell, they lost their best reliever, Josh Hader. Maybe counterintuitive, but I still feel like they think that they are better than the team they were last season, or at least the record they had last season. And so the goal this season is is reach the playoffs, and if they reach the playoffs, maybe they have the, the requisite amount of, of star power and, and maybe some of the frontline pitching if they can stay healthy to to make noise once they get there. We've seen kind of how the way the, the, the National League playoffs have played out the last couple of years. So successful season for the Padres this year would, would be, I think, making the playoffs. And I don't know whether you think they have the payroll room or <laughs> have the willingness to spend to upgrade in season if they are in the running. I'm just I'm looking at the future payroll commitments. And if we look out to, say, 2027, they have the second most money committed of any organization other than the Dodgers. I wonder whether they look at this as sort of there's a window and these guys are going to get old and so we have to make hay here or are they looking at this as more of a no we can keep this going you know this is sustainable in the way that the Dodgers hope that uh, their operation is I think it was a window until they traded until they traded Juan Soto and and at that point it kind of became how do we build for the future and and you look at some of those Contracts like the the Machado and Tatis deals, I think there's there like those could even have some some value to them uh, because Tatis is really good and he's young and Machado is yeah. I mean he's getting older but he he tends to be healthy even though he wasn't last season and he's he's really good so I, I think that they are maybe trying to make that match with the commitments they have make it match with some of the young talent that they have coming up and the guys like Ethan Salas and Jackson Merrill and so they've. They've maybe turned what I think was was a window of 2023 and 2024 when they traded for Juan Soto at the 2022 deadline into maybe a bigger picture. Let's see how this this can work sustainably going into the future. And and at, for right now, I think it's probably based on the moves they've made pretty clear. They're looking to get under the luxury tax number for this season, reset some of the penalties they would incur. But going forward, I mean, there's there's kind of just so much uncertainty with what they're willing to do because of all the all the changes and everything that's gone on. And it'll it'll just be kind of kind of wait and see the pieces that they have going forward. Some of them some of them aren't aren't great deals. Some of them are, I think, intriguing. Like the Tatis contract, that that should be a player who's 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 better than than kind of what the number that he's being paid says he is. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what they do the rest of this offseason and how much they kind of bump up against that that luxury tax threshold. But I think that they'll. Uh, that they'll there there will be at least some room for maneuvering right now and and adding some of the pieces in the rotation in the outfield that they clearly need. 
Yeah. And I wonder how well things have to go for A.J. Preller to be the one making those decisions, right? Because it's, it's been 10 years now. He's one of the longer tenured GMs, and it's been such a, a volatile time at the helm. And with the recent disappointments, with the change in control person, at least, I, I wonder whether there's a, a bit of a hot seat, wobbly chair aspect to the season. Like if the Padres don't deliver this time around, will he get yet another chance or will people start to question whether he could survive yet another disappointment yeah it's definitely a big season for him and i think he understands that we'll get to talk to him when spring trading opens up very shortly but he's gotta there are still so many question marks about this roster and some of the holes and some of the guys that might fill those holes some of the prospects that he brought in given the commitments and given the star power the padres have if they were to miss the playoffs a second straight season that would not i don't think bode well for preller all right. Well, you can follow along and find out by reading AJ Casvel's work at MLP.com. Always a pleasure to have you on, and I hope that this season, one way or another, is a little less perplexing. Although, <laughs> maybe it's nice to have a season that completely reframes our understanding of the sport. <laughs> you know, it's just when we become too confident that we understand how baseball works, then along come the 2023 Padres. <laughs> That's probably the best way to phrase it. I, I know nothing about nothing, but I'll cover the Padres just the same. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. By the way, didn't note this last time. I mentioned that the A's were doing a buy one, get one free offer for opening day, which reeked of desperation. I knew, but did not mention, and then was reminded by listener Scott, that there's a fan boycott of opening day going on. Some of the groups that were mentioned in our interview with Paul Friedman of the Oakland Ballers are helping organize that. So that might be one reason why the A's are going to great lengths to sell opening day tickets or give them away, though I'd imagine that people wouldn't exactly be lining up regardless. There's no need to line up to support this podcast on Patreon. Patreon will let you right in. There's no waiting time. And the following five listeners have already taken advantage of that and have signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Chad Thomas Watson... Jeremy Ashton, J. Wade Edwards, Andrew Paddock, thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, potential podcast appearances, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a patron, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email, send your questions and comments to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. Next time, we'll be previewing the Chicago Cubs and the Texas Rangers. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back to talk to you early next week. It's a fan.